Well, you wouldn't know it, but this place was a mess this week. Apparently, one of the cords in the shop decided to set itself on fire. It is now totally purified. It's been an interesting couple of weeks with bomb threats and fires and whatnot. The elders have gotten together, and we have decided it's time to let the Israelites go. Keep us in prayer as we continue to uh, clean up and restore what has gone up in smoke. The title of today's message is, The Spirit is Willing, But the Flesh is Weak. There are a number of new people here, and so I'd like to lay a foundation for this message by briefly revisiting a subject that I have been stressing over the last couple of decades, the concept of the soul. There are two words for soul in Hebrew. One is the word neshama, which describes God's breath that was breathed into the nostrils of man. And the other one is nefesh, which is translated in Leviticus 17 as the life of the flesh, the physical breath. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, describes how man became a living being. The Lord formed man, or Adam, from the red earth, Adumah. Adam comes from the word Adumah, which means red, red earth. And he breathed the breath of life, Nishmat Chaim. Nishmat is a derivation of the word Neshoma, which is the divine breath or the divine soul. And man became a living soul. Here the word is nefesh chaya, the life of the flesh. Some refer to this as the soul and the spirit of man, but in neither Hebrew nor Greek is there a word spirit. They're both wind, concept of wind. Only in English do we make a, di a distinction between wind and spirit. And what they mean by spirit is the neshama, the divine breath of God, which ignited the life of the flesh. It was imparted by the divine presence. Now, prior to the fall, the breath of God dominated the life of the flesh, the life of man. When man sinned, his flesh became dominant. And that left him out of balance. He was unstable. The difference is obvious in Yeshua's discussion with Nicodemus, who was a rabbi in Israel, a teacher of Israel. And Yeshua explains the born-again, or more properly, the born-from-above concept, experience. In John chapter 3, we're told God is a wind, and that one must be born of the wind, in your English Bible says born of the Spirit, but literally it's born of the wind if he is to see the kingdom of heaven. 
Yeshua speaks of this also in Matthew chapter 26, verse 40. The neshama, the spirit, is willing, but the flesh, the nefesh, is weak. Another rabbi, Rav Shaul, the apostle Paul, speaks to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He says, the glory of God was poured into this vessel of red clay. God breathed his light, his wind into us, and we became alive. His glory was poured into this jar. Now these two souls make man aware of his surroundings. The neshama, the breath of God, makes him aware of God's presence when he's there. And the nefesh, the life of the flesh, makes us aware of our physical surroundings, what's going on everywhere around us. The more sensitive that nefesh is, the more we're aware of. That's true of the neshama too. The more sensitive our breaths of God become, the more we're able to see God. And in reality, God is always with us. He doesn't leave or forsake us. So as we become more aware of God's presence, we understand that his presence is there more often than we used to think. In Romans chapter 1, we're told that there is a testimony, a witness of God in this world. He's there in the physical creation. The heavens declare his glory. The earth is filled with his glory. Everything in the creation gives glory to God. And that's an external concept, right? Those things are outside of us. And then Paul talks about we are without excuse, for there's an internal witness as well. And that internal witness is the neshama, the breath of God that dwells within us. Most of us don't understand the glorious nature of God's creation as it is pertaining to man, humanity. There's a part of God that dwells in us. It's a part of God that makes us aware of the heavenly kingdoms, of God himself. It's an amazing status in this physical creation, absolutely unique. You know, the creature has, a, has that concept of God, that peace of God dwelling within them. Heaven and earth were both very real to Adam. Adam had conversations with God every day. He also had some conversations with some of the animals, too. When man sinned, his awareness of God was dulled, and the presence of God was no longer continually before those generations of man outside the garden. We see... The first act outside the garden is Cain killing, murdering his brother. Lamech murders. We see the, the unrestrained behavior of man running amok. Without 
the sensitivity of the neshama, God's breath, the nefesh was unrestrained. Nothing held it back. And so the deeds that were done were purely evil. It became man's sole focus. It was only after the birth of Shet's son, Enosh, that the neshama was revived in Genesis chapter 5. And once again, then man called upon the name of the Lord. Once that neshama was resurrected, if you will, it became alive again, then we began to call upon God. We recognized that he was there. Those two souls dwell in man, and typically one is dominant over the other. And Paul describes people who are fighting with one another. They're, there's an internal conflict that's going on between the nefesh and the neshama. And he describes these people as either being spiritual or carnal. And the word for carnal in Greek is archikos, which literally means fleshly. It's the flesh and the spirit fight, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about carnal believers. And this, so this, this condition of dynamic tension exists even in believers. We are not exempt. It's not like we, uh, we accept Yeshua and then all of a sudden the battle is over. No, actually the battle first begins in earnest. No man is without sin. When we sin, we are being carnal. We are following the desires of the flesh. We are focused on the nefesh, the flesh, not the neshama, not God. Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8 describe this spiritual battle in, in great detail. Now, I assume Paul is a believer. I have this gift of discernment, and when I read his letters, I, I sense, there's a sense there that Paul actually believed in Yeshua. But listen to the way Paul describes himself. Things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, that's what I do. Wretched man am I, who is to save me from this body of sin and death? Praise be to God, to Yeshua. Paul was constantly torn between two realities, his physical reality and heaven. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen this condition existed in David and Shlomo, Solomon. These were men who were after the heart of God, but were distracted by the things of this world, the desires of the flesh, lust of the eyes, etc. Their neshama, their spirit was willing, but the nefesh, the flesh, was weak. Now, leeching the world from the mind of the believer is a process. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It's not like you accept Yeshua and you never think about the things of the world again. 
Can I get at least a couple of amens? I mean, I, it's, you fight. There's a battle that rages within us in every single situation. Shall I follow God? Shall I follow my flesh? It's a process of purification, a process of sanctification, making that person more holy. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 10. You, however, are controlled not by the flesh, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives within you. If Messiah is in you, the body, the nephesh, is dead because of sin. But the Spirit, the neshoma, is alive because of righteousness. We see this division constantly in Scripture. When we accept Yeshua, the holy wind revives God's breath, his neshoma, within us. And we are made aware of God, and we begin to fear him. Now, a lot of believers don't like the concept of fear. They don't think the fear is from God. But there has to be a context. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, God has not given you the spirit of fear. Well, there's a context to that. The very next verse, verse 8, so do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be afraid of speaking about God to other people. Other men. There's a context here. Or of me, his prisoner. Instead, join me in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Don't be timid. Don't be afraid of the people you're talking to, that they might think you peculiar. Yes. <laughs> For some of us, that's never been really an issue. One of the parent-teacher con conferences that my mother was cursed to have to go to, the teacher told her, your son is not altogether normal, is he? She was so depressed, and I, I was proud. If we fear man, we will conform our behavior to man's standards and the standards of the world. If we fear God, then we'll conform our behavior to his instructions, his Torah, as often as we can. God dramatically teaches Moshe this distinction when he went up on Mount Sinai. Longest conversation in Scripture is God calling Moses, and for every solution that God gives him, Moshe finds a problem. I've had these conversations with people, and they, it's tedious. It gets annoying after a while. You keep coming up with solutions, and they always find a problem for the solution. God is calling Moshe, 
Well, don't you remember what the Israelites did? They, they didn't like me. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll get your brother to talk to them. What about Pharaoh? Oh, no, I, I got Pharaoh. Every solution God gives him, he has a problem for. And eventually the Lord gets tired of this conversation, becomes tedious. And he tells Moshe, put your hand in your tunic. <coughs> and he does. Now pull it out. And it's leprous. He said, now put it back in. Pulls it out, and it's clean once again. God is teaching him not to fear man, who can kill the body, the nephesh, but the one who can kill the body and the soul, the neshama, in hell. Matthew chapter 10. Very dramatic example showing Moshe who he should fear. The sages of my people make a, a rather interesting observation in a Talmudic tractate called Berachot. It says, everything is in the hands of heaven, vis-a-vis -vis God, except the fear of heaven. You understand? Every, God controls everything except the fear of him. He doesn't force us. There's a choice to be made. God, when God's holy wind revives the breath of God within us, we have a choice to make. Are we going to fear him and show reverence to him and walk in his ways? Are we, or are we going to choose to ignore him and fear the world? That's a choice we have to make every single day, in almost every single situation. When I was on the mission field, I would often provide a well-reasoned apologetic for why I believe in God to those who did not. But one time I was led to give a different response. A rather arrogant young lady came to Eliezer and I were sitting at a table in, on the Boulder campus, and she came up and proudly proclaimed, I do not believe in God. I quoted Berachot, and then I said to her, do you really want to live in a world where there's no God? No absolute good and absolute evil, nothing to restrain the behavior of humanity? You can do that. You can live in a world without God by your, by your denial of his existence. But of course, your denial only affects your exposure to God. It doesn't affect God's existence. The blind man can't see light. For him, light doesn't exist. But light still exists. In denying God who is a wind, we set up essentially a windbreak. We encase ourselves in a, in a membrane, a barrier, that inhibits the holy wind from flowing. And we can't hear the voice that walks on that holy wind. When we truly believe in what we cannot see, faith, 
that barrier becomes more porous and wisps of God's wind penetrates. It can enter behind that windbreak, that membrane, and we're able to hear the words that walk on the wind of the day. Adam could hear those clearly. You know, it doesn't say that that the Lord walked in the cool of the evening in the garden. That's not what it says in Hebrew. It says they heard God's words walking on the wind of the day. When we believe, little wisps of winds that carry the words of God are able to get and pierce that barrier and make it to our ears, and we begin to hear God. And every breath of God's holy wind will bring words that force us to choose between him and this world. We can cho choose to walk in the way of God or we can choose to despise the word of the Lord and do evil what is, in his, what is evil in his sight. This is the way the scriptures describe David's sin. And David despised the word of God when he did evil what was, what was evil in the sight of God. Do the noises in my head bother you? Normally they'll stay within my own head, but there's a microphone here. I'll move it. Maybe it, it won't be so loud. When God's prophet, Natan, revealed this to David, he became repentant. His sin revealed no fear of God, and his repentance brought him back to fearing the Lord. That's when he declares, I have sinned before God. The fear of the Lord provides the impetus to avoid the deceitfulness of sin. Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, Moshe said to the people, Fear not, referring to man, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before your faces, that you sin not. With the fear of the Lord comes purity. You're afraid to walk in paths that diverge from the path of righteousness. The word for fear here is yira. There's another profound implication to the word yira. Many rabbis translate yira as to see. The reason they do that is because in many conjugations of to see and fear, those two words are spelt exactly the same. And since there's no vowel points to distinguish them in terms of pronunciation, the word yira, to fear, 
is translated by many, many rabbis as yira, to see. They translate Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And they translate it as to see God is the, is the beginning of wisdom. Or the sight of God is the beginning of wisdom. And these two different translations do not contradict one another. To see God is to fear God. Everybody who sees God fears. That's in both the Tanakh as well as the Brit HaDashah. In the Tanakh, when God appeared at Sinai, everybody was afraid. They couldn't even, please don't let us, God talk to us again, or we will surely die. You go. Hear his words and put them in our ears and we will hear and we will do. Don't let God speak to us. They were afraid. Why? Because he appeared as a consuming fire. In the New Covenant, Yochanan sees him in a vision, and he lays at his feet like one who is dead. Everybody who sees God fears God. There's no contradiction here. And it's God's presence. When he appears, the awareness of God begins one's quest for wisdom. The desire to see God's face consumed King David. Psalm 27, verse 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Yira also gives us a deeper understanding of Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. The Lord, my provider, is in Hebrew, Adonai Yira. The root, according to some, is here, Ra'ah, to see. Abraham saw the provision of God when he opened his eyes and there was a ram caught in the thicket. And he proclaims, God has provided me a sacrifice in place of my son Yitzchak. He saw God's provision. To see is to experience. There's an implication there. To experience, to understand. I see that the blind man to the deaf mute. That was a lot funnier in my head. Jacob declares that he has seen the face of God and yet his life has been spared. And he names the place Peniel, for he has seen the face of God. And ever since that time, righteous men have sought to behold God's face to whatever degree we are able. Without this vision of God, you know, Proverbs 29, and I have no idea why, is translated, without a vision, the people perish. That's not what it says. So without a vision, the people are unrestrained. The very next sentence is, and happy are those who follow God's Torah. 
Moshe also expressed the desire to see God's glory, to behold his face in the fullness. God says, you can't. My full presence would consume you. My goodness will pass before you. All those who would walk righteously before God have embarked on this quest to behold the face of God. The psalmist spoke of those in whom the neshama has been established as dominant over the nefesh in Psalm 24. This is the generation of those who seek after him, who seek your face, even Jacob. He is the father of all those who seek after the face of God. From the greatest to the least of humanity, all those who come before God will tremble and will fear. Where that word has been mitigated by many believers because they don't like the word fear. Well, God does. They translate that as awe or reverence. Yes, the awe and the reverence comes from a deathly fear at beholding the presence of God, this consuming fire that nothing is able to quench. All will bow before him. All will confess Yeshua, who Adon, Jesus, he is Lord. And they will wait for the touch of the hand, just like John did in Revelation 1. And the words, Al-Tira, do not fear. Tira is from the root Ira. I have spent much time over the years revealing God's grace and mercy in the Tanakh. And I have pointed out more times than I can remember that in Yeshua was the fullness of God's grace and mercy revealed to man. But I have not stressed one rather obvious difference in God as revealed in the Tanakh and God as he revealed himself in the Brit HaDashah, the New Covenant. In the Tanakh, God appears to man as God incorporeal, with no form, a wind. You can't see the wind. You, you can't, there's air right there. You can't see it. You can only see the effects the wind has on other things. You can hear it as it rushes past your ear canal. You can see it in the way the trees move, in the way the hairs move on your arm. But you can't see the actual wind. Moshe describes the, God's appearance at Sinai in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12, and he's talking to the people and he says, Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire, and you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. He appeared to those at Sinai the same way he appeared 
to Adam in the garden as words, a voice walking on the wind of the day. In the New Covenant, we heard the words of the living God, but we saw the form who pronounced those words. The word had become flesh, and we beheld his glory, glory as of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, the New Covenant portion today. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Yeshua every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, even the dead. And every tongue should confess Yeshua is Mashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One, to the glory of God the Father. The desires of the nephesh, the flesh, war continually. But the desires of the neshama, God's desire for us. The breath of God will guide a man on the righteous path. The nephesh will lead him away. When Yeshua took upon himself flesh, he began to understand in a far more profound and deeper way the struggle of man to walk with God. Now, I don't even know how to say this because I don't understand it in fullness. But God had no form. He had no flesh. God never experienced the things we did. When he took upon himself flesh, then he understood in a way that he did not before. And I don't know how else to say that. The struggle that man has, the power that the desires of the flesh have over human beings. And that's when the fullness of mercy and grace appeared to us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things just like us. Yet he was without sin. And therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace 
to help in our time of need. He's with us also, always. He understands. My Lord was tempted in every way I am tempted. He struggled in every single area that I struggle. Temptation is not sin. It's what you do with it. The difference is the kingdom of heaven was so real to Yeshua that he was not deluded by the desires of this earthen vessel that he inhabited. We are often deluded. Whenever we sin, there is delusion. Because this world is real to us. To Yeshua, this world was here, and there was the kingdom of God. And that was more real to him than this world. And so he walked in those ways. Why do I love Yeshua? He doesn't give me everything I ask for. Probably be dead if he did. Why do I desire to not disappoint him? Why am I brokenhearted whenever I do? Very simply, because I don't serve a God who requires me to bring a, a sacrifice to satisfy his needs. I serve a God who humbled himself and became a sacrifice to satisfy my need. He did what I couldn't do. My debt to him is not one paid by compulsion. It's a debt I desire to pay. It's a debt of love, not compulsion. In the Tanakh, in Exodus chapter 20, there's a discussion about servants, slaves. And there's a portion about the bond servant, the bond slave. And he was one who was not compelled to serve his master by some external force. He is one who did so willingly, one who chose to serve his master, even when he had the ability to be free. He chose to be the servant. This is why every apostle refers to themselves as a bondservant of Yeshua. It's not a compelling from outside. It's a compulsion that, it, that comes, it's watered and the soil is love. I will leave you with the words of the beloved disciple. The first one, Yeshua called his wife, his bride, 
Dodi is the word that a man uses to describe his wife, his beloved. That was John. The description of other disciples was, there is disciple whom Yeshua loves. He is distinguished from all the others. And in his first letter, he writes in chapter 3, verse 20, Does your heart condemn you? He is greater than your heart, and he knows all things. He knows more about you than you know about you. And he still declares, I love you. He still has forgiven you. This, these are things that, well, as the psalmist says, these, they're too wonderful. Your feet. They're too wonderful. I can't apprehend this concept. You just bask in the light of it. You accept it and rejoice. His love for me is greater than the evil that I have done in my life. His love for me will carry me out of this world and into eternity, where I will behold the beauty of the Lord in the heavenly places. This is the sublime destination for all who proclaim Yeshua, who are done. And you need to take comfort in these words, for they are the words of life, especially in these dark times. We all struggle in this life. Every single day, some more, some less. But those who truly seek after the heart of God will find the heart of God. And if it's his face that you seek, you will find it. We will behold the face of God and bask in the light of his presence for eternity. And as these days get darker and more confusing and more chaotic, the chaos out there is palpable. And the mind cannot figure it out because the mind is reason. But the chaos is random and there is no reason. It just operates. There's no way to predict there's no way to, to anticipate what's going to come next every day. It's some kind of new insanity, and I have determined, though, it's, it's not insanity. It's evil. It's evil. Not, it's not a cerebral condition. It's a spiritual condition. Greater evil is being manifested every single day. And for those who have been regenerated, it's, it looks crazy. Nothing makes any sense. There is no anchor in this world to set your feet on. The only firm ground that we have in this chaotic, swirling mess is Yeshua, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, yeah. 
Stand on that rock. The chaos will swirl around you, but you will find peace. Father, in Yeshua's name, we give praise, honor, and glory to you, and thank you for your promise that you will not leave us and that you will not forsake us. That your holy wind will carry your holy words to your holy ones. Let us seek to behold the kingdom of which you are king. That it would be real to us. And that the reality of your presence would cause us to walk in your ways and not the ways of this world. In Yeshua's name, amen.